So recently we've seen a lot of high-profile Christian leaders, I mean recently, like the past several years or more, uh, get caught up in temptation and, and sin. Um, if you're if you're like in certain crowds, maybe you've heard about some of those things. And some people even kind of leaving the faith behind. I don't know if you're like me, but you ever think like, how in the world could they do that? Like, how? A, a lot of the people that I hear about, it's like, man, I thought that like they seem so. From what I know of them, which isn't much, they seem so strong and so faithful, and um, like, how could that happen? And it also, if you're like me, you think, man, I come on in there. If you're like me, you might think, um, man, I would never do something like that. I could never do something like that. Like I would never abandon Jesus, or I would, I would, I would never think that I could do something like that and ruin my life or ruin my career in ministry or whatever. So maybe you can't like fathom the thought of doing something so blatantly against Jesus that you've seen somebody else do. But I want to tell us tonight that you have the capacity to slip up in the very same ways and maybe even worse than some of the things that you see or read about. We're going to be in Mark 14, the last uh, part of it tonight, Mark 14, 26. And we'll actually like read and refer to it quite a bit, so if possible, um, do look at it. I'm going to have you guys read uh, the different chunks that we look at tonight. So if somebody wouldn't mind just to read Mark 14, and just the first little section, uh, remember this is after the Last Supper that we looked at last week. The first section is Mark 14, verse 26 to 31. Somebody read that. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, so Peter gives here what I was saying at the beginning, maybe a demonstration of how sometimes we feel. I would never, Peter is saying, I would never do that. And if, if we didn't all know the story, then we might think, well, of all people, like Peter is probably the most likely to be able to not scatter away from Jesus or fall away from Jesus, right? He's this strong character in Scripture. And he says emphatically or insistently, he says, I would never, like, though everyone else might fall away, I will not. And that's maybe what you think sometimes when, when we see these people fall. 
To which Jesus responds, hey, not only will you fall, but he tells Peter, but it's going to be this night, and I'm even going to tell you some of the details, knowing that you still will not stand with me, even if I like lay most of it out for you. You still are going to deny me. Um, verse 32, the next little section. Somebody read 32 to 41. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Is that how I said the word? Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to deeply distressed and he began to distress and trouble. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. To the point of death, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed. If possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. 37? Yeah, keep going just to the end of that like, paragraph, 37 to 41. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said, Peter, are you, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for an hour? Watch and pray so that I will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Once more he, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he come back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning, to the, thir returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping, resting? Yeah, resting enough, the hour is come. Look to the sun, and man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. All right. So Jesus takes uh, these three men who are the rock star disciples, right? Three of the apostles, three of, of the twelve. Um, I say rock star. For, he takes Peter with him. He's, you know, all the disciples. He's like, wait here. And then he takes three with him. He says, no, you come a little closer, and maybe they're able to see Jesus when he's praying. He takes these three. Peter, who's like the spokesperson of the disciples, right? Who left his family, left his career, left his possessions. He left everything to follow Jesus. I don't know if any of us can say that, but that was Peter. Uh, we give him a hard time because he says some kind of silly, stupid things and whatever, but Peter is also the one who was the first to verbally acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, so he's not all that goofy, maybe a little smarter than we would have been. We give Peter a hard time for not being very good at walking on water, right? But I don't know how many of us have, in faith, stepped out and had even a second, like, able to walk on the water. He did pretty good for just a little bit, it seems like. And he makes bold statements like he's telling Jesus here, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So you have to admit, like Peter is 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 one of the 
he's as strong as you can get as a disciple of Jesus at this point, it seems like, at least from what we can know. Jesus literally named Peter, Peter, which means rock, right? Or Cephas, rock. Then you have James and John that Jesus brings along with him here, also left their family, their career, their, their possessions. Um, in Luke, we read that there were some uh, Samaritans that weren't being hospitable to Jesus. And it says, when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? These are like rock star disciples, right? Another time we read in Mark, they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. And they said to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? And what did they say to him? Yes, we are able like, you got to admit, these guys, Peter, James, and John, they, they talk big. And if Peter was named Rock, we read of James and John, their nickname was Sons of Thunder, right? Like, these are like pro wrestling names. Rock, Sons of Thunder, right? <laughs> these are the rock stars of, of the disciples. Um, not only are they the rock stars of the disciples, but these three men in particular are also, it seems, Jesus' closest friends. Jesus invited these two guys to witness, or these three guys to witness his most miraculous displays of his power and glory. When he raised the little girl from the dead, it was just Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John, and I think the girl's parents in the room. He wanted them to see that. When he's transfigured, he bring, invites those three guys. They're like his closest. He wants to give them the innermost look at himself and who he, ought, who he is. John is the one who authored the Gospel of John, and he refers to himself in the Gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. These are like Jesus' inside closest people. They're rock stars. They're his closest friends. So if you just kind of picture it in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells his three closest friends something like he has never said before. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Okay. Jesus, the guy who walks up to a man with a thousand demons and just tells the demons what to do and demands that they uh, be cast out of the man into pigs or whatever. Jesus, the guy who, when he's on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and these fishermen are freaking out because of how big the storm is on the sea, Jesus is doing what? He's sleeping in the bottom of the ship on a cushion, Mark says, just comfy, fast asleep. And then they wake him up, and he, he calms the storm. Like, Jesus isn't a guy who's easily troubled, right? He, there's, there's nothing before this uh, to nearly the extent that we read here. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he pulls his closest friends in, James, Peter, John, and he pulls them in on the emotion. And he's like, hey, guys, I want you to know I'm, I'm struggling here. Like, this is big time. I, I need you guys to know this. So can you stay here and keep watch while I pray? Simple instruction. Just kind of wait here for me. I'm going to go pray a little bit. What was he so distressed about? He was distressed about the thought that the wrath, the cup of God's wrath, which was built up against all sinful humanity, was about to be poured out on him at the cross, right? That's what the cup is. It's like drinking God's wrath. And that, 
even to Jesus, is a dreadful thought. It's the only thing maybe that can trouble Jesus. And it does so to the point where he's overwhelmed, and it says he fell to the ground when he starts to pray. Usually you pray standing up, kind of looking to heaven. He falls to the ground. Luke tells us he's sweating drops of blood, right? And after praying, Jesus returns to his three closest friends. He'd given him simple instructions, just remain here, watch. That's it, like basically just stay awake. And, um, you know, he told their, their beloved rabbi and friend, he had told them, hey guys, I'm deeply troubled so much that it feels like I'm going to die. And he comes back to them in verse 37 and says, and he found them, those guys, those rock stars, those best friends, sleeping. So it's, what happened? What happened to these, these strong rock, sons of thunder, close friends of Jesus? Uh, if you look at it, it's interesting, Jesus singles out Peter for the rebuke, kind of, probably because Peter, a.k.a. Rock, looked him in the eyes 30 minutes earlier, maybe, and said, I will never deny you. Everybody else does. I will not. And he's already failing here. Um, Jesus is pretty generous to them by saying, hey, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And also, if you notice, he addresses Peter with Peter's natural name. He calls him Simon. Like, yes, you're Peter, but you're Simon. You are weak-fleshed man, Simon. And of course, uh, what happens is two more times Jesus walks probably several yards away, he goes and prays again, and he comes back again and again to find them sleeping again. You've probably been there before, I've been there before, where you're like on a drive or you're watching a movie or whatever it is, and you're super tired, you just can't keep your eyes open, and everything everything within you, just like you, you want to stay awake, but you just can't. So hopefully, if you're driving, you pull over. That's a good, remember that. Um, it says their eyes were heavy, but if you think about like these circumstances, the disciples, they know something big is coming. It's the Passover. Jesus had been talking in kind of some crazy language here. And like I've fallen asleep in a conversation with somebody before, maybe some of you if I'm super tired. But if somebody tells me, if you tell me, I'm struggling, I'm experiencing the biggest struggle of my life. Can you, can you sit here and keep your eyes open for me? Can you stay awake while I, while I tell you about this? Maybe then I, like, I kind of snap to it. I'm like, okay, man, this is huge. I should, I should stay in this with this person. And Jesus even says, hey, while you wait and while you watch, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Like, try your hardest to just stay with me here. Could you not watch one hour, he says. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So do you see what Mark is, is kind of doing here? He says three times uh, we see an utter inability for humans, even strong humans, to, in their own strength, stand with Jesus. That's like three times. Three strikes and you're out. You maybe one time was like a mistake, and oh, you kind of snapped to it, um, like oh, that was just a simple little one-time kind of fail. But three times kind of proves proves the point even better. We're seeing that these disciples, as strong as they seem to us as the all-star of disciples, are really just weak-fleshed humans. And Jesus, in this moment, stands 
alone. And don't miss that Jesus is agonizing over the wrath of God that he was about to experience for the sake of these men who couldn't even stay awake in this moment of agony. That's why he's going to receive the wrath of God is for their sake and ours. All right, verse 42. Um, somebody could read 42 through 50. Rise and let us begin. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All right, in verse 50 it says, They all left him and fled. So, maybe if we were reading this through all of chapter 14, you might notice what keeps getting repeated every time Judas's name is mentioned. In verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. Verse 19, that Jesus says, Somebody's going to betray me. All the disciples are like, Well, is it me? Is it me? And it said, Jesus says, um, It is one of the twelve. And then here, immediately while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Repeated over and over. One of the twelve. Another one of Jesus' closest followers. Somebody on the inside circle. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, the one who dips the bread in the cup with me or whatever, we do that at our Passover meal. We take the matzo bread and dip it in that cherished or whatever, and it's um, we eat it together. And it's like... Well, that's something you do with family or close friends or whatever, but at the restaurant, you don't like somebody leaves their table and their guacamole sitting out and you take your tortilla chip and you start dipping in there. It's like, well, maybe, maybe you do. <laughs> but generally, we don't do that um, because it's like, oh, that's kind of, that's somebody else's stuff and it's just kind of, but no, that's the person who is going to betray Jesus. It's one who's sharing a meal with them, one who's like double dipping in the same bowl and he's so close uh, to Jesus that even as he, approach, he approaches Jesus he calls him rabbi and he kisses him that's how you kiss your, your rabbi and you do that to somebody close to you so this is Judas even somebody so close to Jesus one of the twelve who has been weakened in his flesh and he chooses we know he chooses money over Jesus and then we see the Jewish police start to seize Jesus, and we see a moment that looks like some strength for the disciples. Like, this is going to be a real shining point. Um, one of the disciples, it says, fights back and kind of cuts off the ear of one of those people that's arresting Jesus, right? Was that the right move? No, it was not. Um, 
Jesus had already said three times that we have recorded in all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he was going to be uh, he was going to be betrayed and arrested. He was going to be killed. He'd already said this in John eighteen eleven. He tells Peter when Peter chops off Malchus's ear, he says, "Put your sword in its sheath." Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Like Jesus is saying, this is the way it's supposed to go down. You haven't been listening. That's not the answer to this situation that we're in. So it seems like, it seems like a really noble act. Like, man, this disciple is sticking up for Jesus or sticking up for himself and the, the rest of the disciples and Jesus. But it's not the right act. And he's, he's doing it because he hasn't been listening well to Jesus or understanding Jesus. And we... I mentioned it. We find from John's Gospel that this is actually Peter, who was the one that chopped off the guy's ear. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but we said when we started this book, Mark, the writer, uh, was probably a disciple of Peter at some point later on, where he would hear all of Peter's teachings, and Peter would kind of be like his rabbi. And it's interesting that Mark doesn't mention Peter's name. Surely he knew that it was Peter. But right now, like he's in the midst of showing the weakness of the disciples and how they have failed. And maybe he doesn't want to accidentally give Peter some credit for like standing with Jesus because he's actually standing in opposition to the plan of God at this point. So on the surface, seems like a bold move, but it's a sign once again of weak flesh humanity who's unwilling to submit to God's will as it's been laid out. Think, well, if you can't fight for Jesus, then like, what's the only other option? Flight. <laughs> like, run away. So we read this key line in verse 50 that's so um, uh, shocking and disappointing. Uh, it says, and they all left him and fled. How many of them? All of them. They all left him and fled. If you remember in Mark 14.31, just a paragraph before, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they all left him and fled. All these absolute statements, all of them. I think Mark wants to make it clear, nobody stands with Jesus on the way to the cross. And so complete is the abandonment of Jesus' disciples that Mark wants to include one more person into the story of abandoning Christ. Verse 51. Uh, somebody read 51 and 52. And the young men follow him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seize him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Yeah. Odd little story. There's not a lot in the book of Mark that is unique to Mark. Like uh, Matthew and Luke pretty much say everything that Mark says except for a few little things. This is one of those few little things that's unique in the book of Mark. So who is this young guy that runs around naked? And to maybe help answer that is if all of the other disciples had already kind of fled the scene, then who is going to be the one even to know about this incident? I think there's a good chance, I don't know for sure, but there's a good chance this is Mark himself writing about himself. That's If you look at biblical commentators and stuff, that's the best guess that we have for who this guy is. And a lot of times, like John, they won't mention them, their own names in the book that they're writing, right? Because that would 
kind of be dishonorable or whatever, but this is maybe Mark writing about himself. And if this young man is Mark, do you think that this event, abandoning the Savior, would have left a mark on him when he remembers back to what he's done? He followed Jesus. He saw everything that had gone down. And when they came to get him, he kind of slips out of the clothes, the sheet that he's in, and he runs away naked like a coward, like a fool, fully exposed, just shamefully running away for his life. You can kind of like hear the, the soldiers later, the officers or the high priest kind of like talking about the event after the fact. Like you got to believe when we we're going to arrest Jesus, there was this one guy who's hiding in the bushes and then we tried to grab him, but he slipped out of his clothes and he ran away butt naked and it was just awesome. And Mark would certainly not be able to forget that event. By the way, if you, the Greek word for young man that he uses kind of insinuates a young man who's really strong and valiant and faithful. Like he's a good kid. And as embarrassing as it is, he has to write it down that just like all the others, who claimed to be disciples of Jesus, he too fled. So Judas abandons Jesus, Peter, James, John, all of the disciples, Mark says, including me, the person telling you this story. There's no one who did not abandon Jesus. Jesus stood alone, not even the person who's writing about these events. All right, verse 53 to 65. That next chunk. And then led Jesus to the high priest, and told the chief priests and the elders, and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, and warming himself at fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, against him. But their testimony, this testimony did not agree, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, "We hear him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with this with hands in three days, and I will build another not made with hands." Yet even about their testimony did not agree, and the high priest stood up in the midst of, and asked Jesus, Have you not answered to make uh, what is that this uh, man testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer against the highest priest. And the high, uh, high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated, seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore the garments and said, What father witness do we need? Um, you have heard his uh, blasphemy. Have you, what is your decision? And they all condemned him in devastating death. Yeah, and that final verse, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him. 
saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. Do you remember us a number of times in this book talking about the messianic secret? So oftentimes, like after Jesus casts out a demon or heals somebody, he tells them basically, hey, don't tell anyone about what I did or don't tell anybody who I am. He tells the demons a lot of times. When Peter makes his his big statement in chapter 8, you are the Messiah, it says Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's the It's like Jesus has some idea about keeping who he is veiled, right? We talked quite a bit about that. And we answer that, I think it was in the second or third week, um, maybe some of the answer comes that if people thought that Jesus was the Messiah, if they recognized him as the Messiah, they might take him and make him king before he had the opportunity to do what the Messiah was really called to do, to suffer and to die. And so they were expecting, we've said this a hundred times, they were expecting the wrong kind of Messiah. And Jesus, in, in telling people, hey, kind of keep this a secret, is really orchestrating and timing his own death and making sure that it's going to happen. So he knows exactly what to tell each person and what, what, tell, what to tell each demon in order to accomplish kind of this perfect balancing of, of revealing himself and veiling himself as Messiah and as the Son of God, knowing that eventually he has to make his way into the hands of the religious leaders to be killed and to accomplish what he was sent to do, right? So to lay down his life as a ransom for many. So the time has come in chapter 14, verse 62, that Jesus finally lets out the secret in a very public way. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. So that secret is no more. Jesus is finally openly saying who he is, and he's done it at this perfect moment of time when those who hate him and have been plotting his death for years, and now they have him in their hands, and they can make a judicial decision with the Sanhedrin to put him to death. And he makes this statement that he knows is going to lead to them bringing him down to killing him for his blasphemy. So who's calling the shops here in this event? It's Jesus. Like he's planned this all out. And then we come back to Peter. Mark uh, kind of leaves Peter a little bit in the plot in verse 54, saying Peter followed at a distance, and then it picks back up here in 66, So these things are going on at the same time. If you're reading this for the first time, then maybe you think, hey, maybe Peter is going to come through. Like, maybe this rock star disciple of Jesus, his best friend, isn't going to uh, fail after all. Like, maybe he's the one. Maybe he'll live up to his name. If anybody can stay faithful to Jesus, maybe it's this Peter guy. He's following closely along. Or like we would think, if there's anybody that I think will not fall away, maybe it's this person that I think about, this Christian leader or this faithful follower of Jesus that I know. Maybe they're going to come through. And uh, the last little section to read is verse 66 through the end of the chapter, if somebody could read that section. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. Now after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Alright, once again, three times. This isn't just like a little stumble or a little slip up, but this is consistent. Can y'all see that this is like the worst possible collapse of counting on the flesh that you could have, or counting on your strength that you could have? Like epic fail is doesn't do enough to describe what happens here just hours before Jesus told him what was going to happen. Mark specifically even records that in, in his denials after the first one, there's a rooster that crows. Should have like woke him up a little bit, but still two times after that, he denies Jesus. The last time he denies knowing Jesus, he's cursing and swearing, saying, I don't know this man, just as emphatically or insistently as he probably said, I will never deny you. So from the strongest disciple, the rock, this person who left everything to follow Jesus, one of his closest friends, the boldest mouthpiece of the apostles, this is the strongest possible way to abandon Jesus that Peter does. Three denials, two of them to a servant girl. It's utter rejection of Jesus. No one stands with Jesus here. No one. I think that in the section we looked at today, Mark and, and even the other gospel writers want to say something by stacking these events in order. Jesus stands alone. All of these absolute statements. In verse 27, Jesus says, you will all fall away. Verse 29 says, Peter, Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Verse 31, Peter says, if I must die with you, I will never deny you. Never. And they all said the same. And then verse 50, we said, they all left him and fled. And even in verse 64, at this trial here with the Sanhedrin, they all condemned him as deserving death. No one would stand with Jesus. Jesus went to the cross alone. Jesus died for our sins alone. What's one thing I take away from that? You would have left Jesus alone too. And I would have left Jesus alone too. You might think that you're strong and I would never do such a thing. You might think that you would follow Jesus all the way but you wouldn't have. You would have given in. Listen, if Peter couldn't do it, and James and John couldn't do it, and this strong, vibrant, good kid Mark couldn't do it, you couldn't do it, and I couldn't do it. Humanity fails Jesus, and Jesus stands alone. And in our flesh, we are all just one temptation away from abandoning Jesus. In our flesh, 
We're just one temptation away from abandoning him. So don't ever say to yourself, well, I would never do that. I could never imagine myself do that. I would never do what that church leader did. I would never treat people unfairly. I would never have an affair. I would never deny Jesus. Yes, in your flesh, you would. Like, you have the capacity to do that. As strong and faithful as you may be, don't ever put yourself above your ability to abandon Jesus. So don't put your faith in how strong your faith is, but put your faith in Jesus, who stands alone and died for the very people who have left him alone. So what's that supposed to look like for us? We just give up and like... Say, well, sorry, God, uh, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak, so I'm out. Sorry, I have to abandon you at times, and thanks for forgiving my sins, by the way. No. Although Jesus stands alone, I believe Jesus calls us to stand with him. Okay, how can I say that? Jesus accomplished his work on the cross alone. When he saves us, he does so when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We add nothing to the saving work of Jesus. He did it alone. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there's something, a couple things different about us now versus the disciples we read about in chapter 14. What's the difference between us and the disciples in chapter 14 at that time? One, we are on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verses 27 and 28. I love that when Jesus tells the disciples in verse 27, you will all fall away, it's followed by verse 28. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay? What Jesus says here is so important. I know he says you will all fall away, I, I, he predicts it, right? One's going to betray me. You're going to run away from me, flee naked. He knew that was going to happen. You're going to deny me. You, I know you're going to utterly and completely scatter and abandon me. But after I'm raised, then I want you to come back to me in Galilee. You see that? Like, Though all the sheep are going to scatter, you will gather with me again. And something changed in these men after they saw the resurrected Jesus, right? They had a much different quality to their faithfulness to him after he was raised. What else is different for us than these pre-resurrection disciples? We have the Spirit of God in us, right? So 40 days after the resurrection, the Spirit of Jesus himself, who stood alone on the cross indwells the believers that we read about, and then you can read the book of Acts, and you can read church history, and you see that these men now have stopped running, they've stopped abandoning Jesus, so to speak, and they begin to stand with Jesus, even at the cost of their own lives. How? Because they have the spirit of Jesus, the only one who is left standing, empowering them to live a different way now. And that brings me to just the kind of final point. If we have been empowered and we who have the Spirit of God have been empowered to stand with Jesus, what does that look like? 
and just to be clear, like standing with Jesus when I say that, it's not our own doing. Our flesh is weak. We only stand with him because we share in his resurrection life and because his spirit is now in us. This is not, hey, look how faithful I can be compared to what these dopes did in chapter 14 of the book of Mark. It's Jesus in us. But what does it look like to, to stand with Jesus? And I want to look at the, the trial of Jesus at the Sanhedrin to, to show what it looks like to stand with Jesus. Jesus demonstrates what he wants of us. So while Peter is failing at his questioning of the uh, servant girl or whatever, Jesus was demonstrate, demonstrating what to do in his own questioning, in his own trial. Okay? Look around verse like 60. People are making false accusations about Jesus, trying, making stuff up. Some of it's kind of right, but they're just not matching their testimonies. It says in verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61, But he remained silent and made no answer. Check this out. Jesus doesn't here defend himself. Neither in the Garden of Gethsemane does he defend himself. He doesn't feel the need to stand up for himself and fight. But, verse 61, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Jesus also doesn't run from the truth, but he faces it head on, just like in the garden in another account. It's like he says, hey, do, do what you came to do to arrest me. Like, I'm the guy that you're looking for. So, so get this. Jesus stays quiet when he could have defended himself, but he spoke up for the truth even when he knew it would hurt him. So he stayed quiet when he could have defended himself, but he spoke up for the truth even when he knew that it would hurt him. In our flesh, we do the opposite of that. We speak up when we feel like we have to defend ourselves, and then sometimes we stay quiet when we know that when the truth about what we believe gets out, it may hurt us or it may cause some ridicule or uncomfortableness in our lives, right? So in our flesh, we do the opposite that Jesus has done. You can see even how um, Peter's actions contrast with Jesus's. In the garden, Peter feels like he has to defend himself and to defend Jesus and to stand up for things and to take matters into his own hands. And then in the courtyard of the high priest, he's afraid to speak the truth because he realizes, gosh, I know where this might lead. It might lead me to the same place that I see Jesus being led to right now. Now, I, I feel for Peter, I've said this before, I feel so bad for this guy because he, he, he just can't get it right. He probably doesn't even know what exactly is the right thing to do. Like in the garden... He, he stands up for Jesus, and he's fighting for him, cutting off a guy's ear, but that was wrong. What's the other option but to do what he and the disciples did and kind of run away? It's like it's either fight or flight. What else are you going to do? But Jesus does neither of those, and he calls us to do neither of those things. You remember his call to the disciples right after he first tells them, I'm going to suffer many things and be rejected and die. He says, if anyone else would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So here's how 
Jesus calls us to stand with him. Not fight, not flight, but die. Don't fight, don't run away, but die. And you see Jesus display this. He could have fought, he could have defended himself in that scene. Like, your testimonies aren't even making sense. Like, Jesus is super smart, right? He could have been a really great lawyer and defended himself and and fought that case. Or he could have, when asked about, are you the Messiah, the Son of God, he could have said, oh gosh, that's going to lead to my death, so I'm going to plead the fifth here and not incriminate myself. But he didn't. He doesn't fight. He doesn't run from the truth. But he says what he knows is eventually going to get him killed. Not fight, not flight, but die. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, we aren't to do it in a way that... um, is fighting for ourselves or to prove that we're right or to prove that Christianity isn't as laughable as it may seem to some people as if Jesus needs us to stick up for him like Peter does in Gethsemane sometimes we think that's the right way to stand with Christ like that's some of our tendency maybe depending on your personality or whatever we in our flesh, we want to like fight our case, right? This is why Christianity is true, and we want to stand up for Jesus. But that's not the call of, of standing with Christ. That's not what Christ did. That's weak flesh. Fight. And obviously, he doesn't call us to run away. Like, that's another some of our tendency. Like, we're faced with this conversation about Jesus, about our faith, and that's going to be awkward. It may cause people to think differently about us, whatever. But... That's not the call of standing with Christ. That's weak flesh. The call of the Christian in the strength of the Spirit of Christ who's in us is to stand with Jesus by taking up our cross and dying with him. That's where these pre-resurrection disciples failed. Peter should have said to the slave girl, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus, go ahead and tell everybody and cuff me, and I I believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And now that Jesus is raised, and now that his spirit empowers us, we can do that. Some of us have, have messed up big time in our lives in the weakness of our flesh. Some of us in our flesh, we have abandoned Jesus by placing money above him, like Judas. Some of us have fallen asleep, like Peter and James and John, when Jesus clearly tells us, he says it to all, stay awake, I'm, I'm coming again. But we fall asleep. Sometimes we've tried to defend ourselves, like Peter, as if Jesus needs our help, and isn't strong enough, and we try to maybe make the gospel sound more convincing than just Christ crucified. Sometimes we shamefully run away, like all of the disciples. 
because we're like, man, I'm not sure how things are going to turn out, but it looks like really bad if we stand with Christ. And maybe, like Mark, we run away in a way that's just super embarrassing. We maybe have even denied knowing Jesus because we're scared. As strong as we think we are, we have all abandoned Jesus in every way imaginable. And to all these failures, Jesus would say to us, meet me in Galilee. I know that you have done those things. I knew that you would do those things before I even died for you. I know that your flesh is weak, but you now stand with me because I stood alone. So here's what I'm telling you to do. Walk in my spirit and die. Let's pray. Father, what you call us to is... um, It seems very hard. And uh, all of us, I think, can uh, associate with the idea of wanting to stick up for you and kind of fight our our case of Christianity and so we don't sound stupid. Um, Or all of us, at points, I'm sure, have kind of run away from the opportunity to stand with you. I confess, man, I've done both of those things quite a bit. That's my flesh tendency. And I think we can all say, um, along with how Jesus describes the three, that our our spirit in us is, is willing, but our flesh is weak. So we want to confess that, God. But we also want to recognize that you have put your spirit in us the the spirit of the resurrected Jesus Christ to live in a way that's different and we see your people in the rest of the New Testament and in church history who have lived a different life than we see demonstrated by these great disciples in chapter 14 Lord, that's what we want for ourselves. We want to properly stand with you, not in a way that takes any of your glory away from our salvation. God, you have done it all. You stand alone. You went to the cross alone by your own power. You were raised, and we just reap the benefit of that. God, would you teach us what it looks like to walk in you, to walk in your spirit, not to fight, not to run away, but to lay down our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.